Our scripture lesson this morning is going to come to us from the book of Romans. You can turn to chapter 3. This is on page 941 of your pew Bibles. And we're going to pick up in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is the one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow, overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And our catechism lesson is Belgic Confession Articles 16 and 17. They're both rather short, and I'll read them for us now. We believe that all Adam's descendants, having thus fallen into perdition and ruin by the sin of the first man, God showed himself to be as he is, merciful and just. He is merciful in withdrawing and saving from this perdition those whom he in his eternal, unchangeable counsel, has elected and chosen in Jesus Christ our Lord by his pure goodness, without any consideration of their works. He is just in leaving the others in their ruin and fall into which they plunged themselves. Article 17. We believe that our good God, by his marvelous wisdom and goodness, seeing that man had plunged himself in this manner into both physical and spiritual death, and made himself completely miserable, set out to find him, though man, trembling all over, was fleeing from him. And he comforted him, promising to give him his son, born of a woman, to crush the head of the serpent and to make him blessed. When you pick up a book and you read... Uh, in there, you're encountering the author. You're learning something about him. Tolkien once said of the Lord of the Rings, one writes such a story not out of the leaves of trees still to be observed, nor by means of botany and soil science, but it grows like a seed in the dark out of the leaf mold of the mind, out of all that has been seen or thought or read, that has long ago been forgotten, descending into the deeps, no doubt there is much personal selection, as with a gardener, what one throws on one's personal compost heap. And my mold is evidently made largely of linguistic matter. 
If you remember, the Lord of the Rings started with Tolkien making up languages. And it took someone like that to make up these stories. He talks about how words or names would come to him. And he compares himself here to a gardener, selecting certain things, highlighting certain things. When we're reading his stories, we learn about him. We're encountering him in some way. He wrote the words, he chose the words, he was interested in certain mythologies, and that's why we have all the stories he wrote. We can get a good sense of what he thought by what he left behind. In the same way, Scripture doesn't just reveal to us bare words. It reveals to us things about the author. This is, of course, true of biblical authors. Most of the things we know about writers in the Bible, like Paul, is from what they wrote and left behind. We know something of his personality, something of his priorities. But even more paramount, in all of the scriptures, we learn and encounter the divine author. We can think of that passage, the beginning to the book of Hebrews, right? God spoke to us in many ways and in great detail. But in these last days, he's revealed himself in his word, in his son. This revelation is about who God is. Even when we go through the confession as we're doing and we turn to new topics... We're still doing theology. We're still learning about who God is, what his story is, what he's revealed himself to be. All throughout, we should still be learning and prioritizing who God is. And this is where, when we come to our confession and we see these short articles, they're not like encyclopedia entries. We often expect that. When uh, in the past I would look things up in a confession, I'd almost go to the index and I'd go, okay, here's the topic I want, and I would select. But instead of doing that, the Belgic Confession has articles like Article 17, which connects the material that we've seen to the material that's coming. One persistent idea that far too many people have about confessions and theology is that they're not practical. I was reminded this week of uh, Dr. Godfrey, Robert Godfrey, he has a line about historians, and it's, one must work very hard to make history boring. Unfortunately, many historians are very hardworking. <laughs> one could easily change this, right? One must uh, work very hard to make theology impractical, to make it esoteric, and unfortunately, many theologians are hardworking. The Belgic Confession reminds us and points us to the fact that it's not just doctrine, though it is that, it's also a story. It's our story. It's who God has revealed himself to be. This is theology at its best. It isn't just that encyclopedia article. You can go and you can learn those things, but it's God's story. It's who God is. It's the story we find ourselves in. It's the story which God has told to us about ourselves. It's the story that gives our lives meaning. And this is where we get these articles, and they're pivoting us from doctrine of God and what God the Father has done, the work of creation associated with the Father, to Christ's work. And here at this hinge is where we find the doctrine of election. Here at this hinge is where we find this promised seed. We've been focused throughout this series on the confession in 
who God is. And then the story of creation, what the Father has, has done through the Son and by the Spirit. And we looked at the fall of mankind. How did creation come to be less than perfect? And now we turn to God's plan of recovery. Recovery of the fallen man, of you and I. And at this hinge point, we see election. It's not only Article 16 by itself, it's part of a whole story. And so we start with who is God? What does the confession tell us? What does scripture tell us? Here in our catechism lesson, our scripture text, both point to God's justice, his justness, and the fact that he justifies outside of the law. Here in the confession, we see that it says that God is both merciful and just. This is a thread throughout the confession. It will be picked up again in Article 20, which we'll encounter in a few weeks. But it's who God is. That's still what we're talking about. He is merciful and just. He reveals this in his two words, his law and his gospel. He reveals himself as both of these things. We see these things earlier in the confession, but not together. God is described as just in the very first article. In the article on the Trinity, it talks about how the members of the Trinity are merciful. And here they show up together. And God is just. His standards are absolute. He's just by his law. He's the source of justice. We often think of God as the just judge, the one who will not pardon iniquity. And here in our scripture lesson, we see Paul talking about how God passed over former sins. How could he do that and be just? And he says, well, in these latter days, he's, he's revealed how, through his son. His law is ex an expression of who he is, of his justice, of the fact that wickedness and suffering, evil will end, just not yet. His law and justice aren't a problem to be solved. We're a problem to be solved. To quote the great theologian Taylor Swift, who recently wrote, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. Trying to be relevant here. She was obviously summarizing G.K. Chesterton in his letter to the editor. But we're the problem. We're the problem. It's not the law, it's not God's justice that is a problem. Justice is who God is, but he has also revealed himself to be merciful. From the very beginning, God reveals himself, not just in justice and judgment, but if you turn to the third chapter of your Bible, which the confession directs us to, he reveals himself to be merciful. That's why the article points us backwards. Even at the very fall of man, when God is meeting out his justice, he's also meeting out his mercy. He's promising. He's promising to crush the seed of the serpent. Why is God being just and merciful and both of these things so important? Well, it's an answer to multiple questions we have in our lives. Why doesn't God save everyone? Why does God save anyone? Who does God save? That's why we talk about election. That's why we talk about God's justice and his mercy. That's why Paul talked about it in our lesson today. God is just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Christ outside of the law. 
And Paul's argument in Romans as he's going through, this comes after he reminds everyone that Jew and Gentile both stand condemned by the law. God's word of justice and his law condemns sinful humanity. But there's another way. That's where this lesson started. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. He manifested it in his son, who he promised beforehand. He shows grace and mercy in that way. The gospel means that God saves those who are sinful because he is just and merciful. And our confession, our scriptures, remind us of this fact as it talks about election. Christ is the one who saves. God's story that we have in special revelation isn't primarily about God meeting out his justice. Those images loom large. In a few weeks in our communion service, we'll talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. That tends to be how we think about God, but think about the fact that he calls Abraham and Noah. Yes, he judges, but he also saves. Even when he's destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, he's saving Lot. So why do we have the doctrine of election? Well, first, it's because God acts first. To go back to Genesis 3, what are Adam and Eve doing at this point? When God comes in the spirit of the day, they run, they flee. They're not turning to God. They're not asking to be saved. They're fleeing from his presence. They expect him to come in justice, and he does. But he also comes in mercy. He acts first. He tells them about the promised seed. They don't ask for it. We see in election that God chooses whom he will. He doesn't choose who's already good. We can think later in Genesis about Jacob. Jacob is the deceiver, the supplanter. He takes his brother's birthright. He wrestles with the Lord at the close to the end of his life. And that's a picture of what he's been doing the whole time. He's been wrestling, fighting. He's not a good guy. But God chooses him. God's election isn't because Jacob is good. God's election helps make him good. The very beginning, God must come to sinful people. There are no other kind. He saves them. He makes them holy. He doesn't choose them because they are holy or because they will be holy. Right? Our confession makes the observation. God set out to find him, Adam, though man trembling all over was fleeing from him. And what did he do? He comforted him. He comforted him with the gospel. God had to set out to save sinful humanity as he's fleeing and trembling. Why do we have this doctrine of election? Well, because God is the one who saves. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We are the ones saved in a passive sense. God acts first. This is one of the implications of last week's lesson on the fall and original sin. We aren't able to save ourselves. Even the cross itself, as Martin Luther would go on to say, points us to this fact. We can't save ourselves. It took the cross 
That's how deep our plight was. Paul recognized that without the Holy Spirit, the preaching of the cross was foolishness. It makes no sense. Why would God come down and do this? Well, because we were so sinful. It points us to how dire our predicament is. How hopeless and helpless we really were. One way to think about it is that it took a miracle. It took God taking on flesh, bearing the penalty that he did not owe, rising from the dead. It was a miracle required to justify the ungodly. That's how dire the predicament was. That's why we have the doctrine of election, because God has to set out and save us from such a dire situation. Salvation, justification, as Paul would say, of sinful mankind is a miracle. It's accomplished by the death and resurrection of God's Son. And as Paul says, not by works, by faith. He makes the point in this passage. He goes on to make it in the next chapter. It's not a wage. It's a gift. He makes the point as well in Ephesians. It's a gift. It's not a work. Election explains that. God has to choose to save some, not because of anything in them. It's a gift he gives. If it's based on something in them, some foreseeing of of what they will do or who they will be, then God just saves good people. No, God makes people good. Luther would say, and I'm paraphrasing, it's not in my notes, but Luther would say, God's love doesn't love what is lovely, it creates the lovely. God's love seeks out and makes what is pleasing to it. That's why we have this doctrine of election. God saves those whom he will, not those who are good enough for him. And this also points us to how we should read our Bibles as we look to the promised seed. We see here in these non-encyclopedic articles, this article on election, which is not exactly what we might expect, and this article on the promised seed, how the Reformed and the Reformers read their Bibles. When they were reading, they saw Christ in Genesis 3. They're reading like Christians. They're reading theologically. And in a lot of churches, in a lot of Bible studies, this is now revolutionary. When we come to the Scriptures, we need to read it with God's plan of salvation in mind. That He is the one who justifies sinners. That He is the one who's promised Christ. It changes how we read Psalm 91, which we sang together. He will keep you. He will not let your foot touch a rock. You will trample serpents and lions. Is that about you and I, or is that about our Savior, the promised seed, the Messiah? When we come to our Bibles, we need to keep that in mind. It's not a place where we find general good advice or science. It's where we find our Savior. We don't forget that as we read our Old Testament or even our New Testament. Many today advocate for reading our Old Testaments 
as though they don't talk about Christ, as if they're somehow less than Christian. But it's what the church had as its Bible at the time of Paul. It's from the Old Testament that Paul makes this argument. This is how we read our Bibles. We read it pointing towards Christ. And we read it all together as a whole. We don't isolate verses or words or chapters or books. We take them together as a whole. We read it together. Often I think we start with the verse and we look for some special meaning in it. But the answer is in the whole story. You can take a verse and really take it out of context if you don't know who is saying it. And so we read the words in the verse, the verse in the chapter, the chapter in a book. The books are part of collections. The collections are part of the scriptures and they're part of God's story of salvation that we read together as a whole. Genesis finds its culmination in Christ. Revelation points us back to the very beginning. Paul is drawing out from the Old Testament scriptures what Christ did for us. And so we read the Bible as well looking for that plan, looking for special revelation of the gospel, right? That it is God's story, that he's revealing to us who he is, a God that is just and merciful in Christ. That's what the scriptures are teaching us about what God has done and who he is and what he's done to save sinners. And we also remember that when we're doing the best kind of theology, we don't lose track of this story. Not only when we're reading our Bibles, but when we're putting things together, we need to believe and confess that God sought us out that he promised a savior. We believe that God is a God who seeks and saves the lost. That this story that we hear week in and week out is our story. Not only should our Bible reading keep the story in mind, but as we're putting the story together, we should not detach it from ourselves or from the scriptures. They're relevant. They talk to us about who we are, about where we find meaning. God is saving us, not some abstract people. Election is not some abstract doctrine. It's a confession that God seeks and saves sinners, even when they don't want it. It's not some speculative doctrine, though we can get very precise about where it fits in a system. It's a doctrine about God saving. Because the answer to that plight, that dire plight, is who God is and what he does through his son. He acted to save us in Christ, whom he promised beforehand. That's why what follows immediately after this promised seed is the incarnation, is Christ's work. That Christ is the mediator between God and man. God gives people the gift of faith, gives them the gift of his son. He unites them to his death and his life, as Paul will go on to say in Romans. Not the people who are already good, but the people who cling to his son, in whom he's revealed his mercy and his justice. If you'll join me in prayer. Almighty 
and most merciful God. We thank you for your promise. We thank you for all of your promises, which are yes and amen in Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you that you are a God who seeks and saves those lost in their sin, in darkness. You have sought a people for yourself. You have come to us though we were trembling, though we were fleeing, like our father Adam. You sought us out to display your mercy. We are thankful that you have included us and folded us into your story, that you were gracious to us in your Son and by your Spirit. You make those who are not a people into your own people, and you call men and women to yourself, even today, by your word. We ask that by your Spirit you would draw us closer to you, that we would grow in our knowledge of you and our love for you. Help us to know you through your Son and through your word as a God who is both just and merciful. We pray this in the name of Christ and by the Spirit. Amen.